Thanks for joining us at Colts to Consciousness. This storytelling podcast is meant to be for entertainment purposes only and does not substitute for any medical advice. We may discuss triggering topics and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. Lastly, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the host. We were much more always of a forced polyamory group, meaning you were expected to have sex with anyone and everybody that wanted to have sex with you. And they considered it sharing God's love. Except not those guys out there or those guys. Only the people in the group deserve God's love. To my father, I said, in two months, I'm going to be 16. At which point I would have just been on the menu for every man in this place. And you would have had no issue with it. My first job as a lieutenant is when I Googled Children of God cults for the first time. Wow. About 10 seconds later was staring at a picture of my father's face on a well-known pedophiles page. Really? And that's how I found out my father's legal name. Speaking of the after part, that's always a fun cocktail story to tell. Hey, my name is Shalise Ansola, and this is Cults to Consciousness, where we discuss leaving high-demand religions or organizations and finding healing and independence through awareness and true individual sovereignty. If you're only listening and you want to see our faces, go to our YouTube channel at Cults to Consciousness, where you can join in on the conversation. Leave those words of encouragement for our guests who are bravely coming on and sharing their stories, and become a subscriber. It really helps boost the algorithm, get these stories out to more people, and become advocates for, again, those who are coming on and sharing their stories. So today's guest, we have had her on twice before. She's awesome. We all love her. She is from the Children of God cult. We did an entire deep dive on her childhood. Today, we're going to focus a little bit more on how she started to realize the brainwashing was happening and pushed back from that, rebelled from that, how she got excommunicated, and then really her transition afterwards and the unexpected consequences of leaving this group and kind of going off on her own, which was a really scary thing to do. Now she's written an entire book about it. Highly recommend. She has an audio book, which I listened to. It was awesome, but she's also releasing the paperback. It's called Uncultured. It was just mentioned in the the New York Times. She's kind of a big deal, and she's also a scholar of cults. She's just li- all the things. So thank you so much for joining us again, Daniela Mastanek-Young. Thanks so much for having me. It's nice to see you again. Yeah, yeah. It's great to connect. And I follow you on social media. And girl, you're posting like every single day on social media. And it's so awesome and inspiring. Every time I see your content, I'm like, man, I need to get on this (laughs) because she has some great stuff. So we'll put all of the links to her Instagram, her TikTok on the screen at the end and in the description below. But we are also going to do a little giveaway with her book. So stay tuned to the end to find out how you can win one of those. So, Daniela, where do you want to start as far as your story? I mean, maybe actually let's start and give context for the Children of God cult, like a brief overview of what they're about and why they're so harmful and how they're essentially very much like a cult. Yes. Uh, Children of God is the one that most people don't argue about anymore, uh, fortunately, for us survivors. So the Children of God was started in this late 60s, early 70s, which was sort of the last, you know, big wave of cults in the US, uh, which something interesting to know is that cults happen in time and space. 
because they pop up during times of social turmoil. So mm-hmm. when all of the stuff of the late sixties was going on and all of these hippie children really are running off to go find their own individual sovereignty, lots of them found drugs or other things going on. This sort of failed preacher man goes to Huntington beach, California, and just kind of starts collecting people into his Jesus movement. And so the children of God initially was sort of your conservative evangelicalism, you know, out of that tradition, which his his mother was a revivalist in the thirties. So he's coming from this Christian evangelical tradition. And the way I explain what he did is he took kind of your conservative control of sex and he just flipped it. And so he called it open love, free love. And I call it forced polyamory Mm. is really what it became. So, you know, the children of God ultimately was this closed off separatist group that believed that David Berg was the prophet of God sent to usher in the end time and prepare the world At one point, he predicted, you know, Armageddon in 1993, the world ending. And, you know, so so sort of real-time apocalyptic preparation, but then also with this undertone of all of the sexual stuff, which is really what it becomes famous for in the 70s and 80s. He's using women as religious prostitutes, um, not even being shy about it, right? Calling them hookers for Jesus. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, recruiting all over the world. They estimated 200,000 people were fished, um, which meant, you know, sometimes they would join the group more often was giving money and support to this cause. And then ultimately his beliefs really turned into what I can only explain as pedophilia for God, Mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, now bringing, oh, all of this free open sex stuff that we believe this is now going to include the children. Yeah. And I, I say it in this way to sort of reemphasize for people too, that it happens in stages, you know? So in the beginning, people believe they're 15 to 18 year old hippies really. And they believe that they are going off to join this Jesus group. They end up sometimes 10, 20, 30 years later in the, one of the world's most notorious sex cults. And that's how my family got involved was my grandfather was one of these hippies that had a weird drug trip where he swore he met Satan. And the next day as he was sitting with his hand in his hands in a park, wondering, you know, what he was going to do with his life up walk the happy, bouncy, shiny singing children of God. And off he goes with them as far as we know, never looking back. And because my grandfather is one of the few college educated people, he's already a CPA, he becomes very important to the sort of international financing and movement of this cult, Mm -hmm. which then goes global around the world. And my mom was, I believe, one of the first 10 kids born into the children of God. And then I was born to her when she was 15. Okay. Some of the things that stand out to me after reading your book and doing the interviews with you is, for one, they keep everything really isolated. So they 
basically leave the states. There's still some people who remain in the states, but mostly they get out of there so that they can go unnoticed in these big compounds with high walls that no one's really checking in on. They don't value education as much for kids. And that's something that you consistently talked about in your book was how you were just yearning to learn more and learn more and getting pushed back and pushed back and not being able to really get to your full potential. And luckily, your mom is the one that taught you how to read. So you were able to kind of sneak books whenever you could. And then the third, which is the most obvious, and you've touched on it already, is the fact that they thought children should be sexually liberated in this way. And they actually wrote this really disgusting handbook on how to do it with children. And so obviously that creates a lot of issues and a lot of abuses and it's just supposed to be normal. You talk about a scene in your book where there's this huge sex party happening and the kids are just there and walking around naked or mostly naked. And it just, it's really shocking the imagery that goes on in these groups because they are so insulated. Yeah. You know, it wasn't until a early reviewer of my book actually pointed out the geographic abuse that goes on that really kind of struck me, you know, that, yeah, they, you know, I had looked at it as, of course, we were fleeing. They were fleeing the United States. He was fleeing, you know, cults were getting a bad rep in the 70s. Um, and so all of a sudden, of course, our prophet says, well, go around the world. But it was also making it that much more difficult for people to leave, mm -hmm. especially once you start having these large, large families, right? Because we're isolated and people are on average having, let's say, 10 to 15 children per family because as the children of God ceases to be a prostitution ring and it rebrands as the family of love in the 80s, we're going out to evangelize and win the world for Jesus. It really just became like a child labor child trafficking ring mm -hmm. where we made childhood entertainment videos. You know, I specifically was one of the actresses on these videos, but then also we had thousands and thousands of children that would sell these around the world, you know, go out and sing and perform places and then sell these videos. Some of them were, you know, sanitized evangelical Christian videos. And some of them were actually made to just be, generic childhood entertainment videos, um, which of course is very ironic since we ourselves had almost no education. Right. Um, but, you know, we were being trained from birth to be these shiny, happy, performing children because this is all part of it, right? It's like what you look like from the outside. I'm so glad that you brought that up because it's so common for the regular person who's never been in a cult to look at groups like this or like Mormonism, for example, the one that I grew up in and be like, but they look so happy. Look at the kids. They're all smiling. They're clean and like all the things. It's like, OK, what does that actually mean? Nothing. It doesn't mean anything. You don't know what's going on when they get home. It's just 
a huge wake up call to people and something that I want to draw a lot of attention to, yeah. which is just because they present a certain way does not mean everything's fine. In fact, it could mean the exact opposite in many cases. Exactly. Exactly. And sometimes I think it does mean something, but it's not what they're trying to message. You know, so I say all the time as a cult scholar, if I could just if I could just get every incoming freshman in every university in America to know that like, if a group wants you and all of their recruiters are like happy and shiny and bouncy, like go away, mm -hmm. right? Because that's not how a large group of people naturally shows up, mm -hmm. right? Like I, I get my daughter and two of her friends together and all three of them are not smiling <laughs> at the same time ever. Right. So like when all of the children are happy and smiling and perfectly groomed, you can almost bet that there's a lot of attitude and appearance control mm -hmm. going on behind the scenes. Um, and think about think about your happy, shiny groups that are recruiting on campuses. Right. They're fraternities and sororities and other cult like kinds of organizations. Right. You know, and it's, it, it really is one of those signs, but that's how they get away with it. Right. And the children of God is so good at this that they go from being in Time magazine in the eighties as a sex cult to performing twice at the White House in the nineties. Again, happy, shiny young people. Yeah. White. White. That's also something that we should look at when it comes to children because like you said when you get kids together they are not normally just straight laced well behaved do anything you say and what we see often within the Amish for example or any high control group is when you have kids that are so obedient like that not to say it doesn't exist but a lot of times it's because they're terrified to act out in public because they've mm -hmm. been trained mm -hmm to be submissive and quiet, not say anything, do whatever mom and dad say, and it's out of fear. And so, again, that's not to say that a well-behaved kid is abused at home always, but it's something to watch out for. If you see an entire family of 10 perfectly well-behaved, it might be something to look into. Yeah, and it's a sign that so many first responders miss, right? Or, or people that are supposed to be the ones on the lookout. Mm -hmm. So we see this most heartbreakingly in the case of Waco, where you can see where the FBI and the ATF who have taken some of the children are just so overwhelmingly impressed with how well behaved the children are outside the commune, but also inside the compound, how they will sit for hours in the middle of the night watching David preach. Mm -hmm. And, you know, anyone looking who knows what they're talking about is going, no, those, they aren't well behaved. They are, as you said, terrified. Um, and, you know, another example of this is the Duggars, yeah. right? Like when I had just come out of the Children of God in 2003 and like the Duggars is on television around this time, I just remember being shocked that Americans are just watching a cult on TV and nobody could realize what it was. Mm -hmm. And in the, you know, Happy Shiny People documentary, they talk about this, like 
Jim Bob Duggar was so confident on the control that he had on those children that he knew none of them would break rank in front of the cameras and talk about like the abuse that went on behind closed doors. Yeah. Right. Like that, and, and that makes total sense, right? Because in the children of God, I mean, we would have argued against our own rescue passionately. Yeah. Right. And I, I even try to show this in the book where I say, you know, I was as afraid that we would get raided by the cops and taken away. You know, I was afraid I would have to leave as I was that I would have to stay because they do such a good job of training you that this attitude and this view that we present to the world is crucial. And that if we let our mask slip for even a moment, you know, the big bad outside world is going to come and get us, um, right. which is a concept really relevant to, to leaving the cult later on. You know? Yeah. And that's something that I actually wanted to talk about. So can you give us some examples of things that they would say to you in these training sessions to how to respond to police or anyone who came investigating the cult? Yeah. So, and you know, most high control groups have some version of sort of condoned lying mm-hmm. right where you're you're never supposed to lie to people inside your your group or your circle or circle of trust or whatever you call your group because nobody calls it a cult <laughs> but it, it's there's one thing for our group and there's this other story for outsiders and so we had a whole doctrine called deceivers yet true and they made comic books for the kids and it was all these different like bible stories and christian stories of times when people had to lie for god you know and and we were very much sort of drilled in the you know what do you say if people ask you if we're a cult or if they ask you if you've ever been abused and it's you know it's almost weird to explain how you can take children who are getting beat every day, but then still get them to not only say, but actually believe like, no, these people love us Mm -hmm. and they would never harm us because you've both trained us that what you're, you are doing is love and it's for our good. And then you've also made us so afraid of the outside and what will happen to us if we are, you know, found out and caught and taken away. That's the thing that's so insidious is a lot of people think, well, why can't you just leave? Obviously, in the case of a child, that that's just not an option. But when it comes to adults, if it's so bad, why don't you just leave? Because they have you believing that the pain and the suffering that you are enduring is actually fine compared to what you would get if you were to leave. So the fear is so intense that they don't even realize it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be painful. Yeah. I mean, exit costs, like that's kind of the biggest thing. And I even just think even normal people who've never been in anything high control, you know, when they say that question, I like to push back on people, you know, do you love everything about your job? No. Like, why don't you just leave? (laughs) And they'll be like, oh, but well, I can't. I have like, uh, yeah, uh, like, yeah, exactly. Like, except in a cult, they make sure that every part of your life is tied up into that group. And so every part of your life will be affected. 
Yeah. You know, hugely high stakes. I describe it. I describe it now sometimes as like, what am I going to lose if I'm not a part of this community anymore? Mm -hmm. Which is, yes, hugely high stakes. And when you're a child, of course, you can't even fathom, you know, you're just told that all these horrible things are going to happen to you in the outside world. And that your people love you. And so that's what you believe. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the moment for you then when you realized, even if the outside world is worse, I want out. When did you start to understand that you could no longer be a part of Children of God? So I have two very specific moments in my childhood. Looking back now, I don't know that I ever like believed in God or felt that it wasn't like some sort of game or thing that we were playing. But I guess you can only, you know, go along with what the people around you are telling you at a certain age. So when I'm six years old, I have this really, really bad moment that begins with us playing broken telephone and like sort of understanding this concept of word of mouth being problematic And so then I question, you know, well, we've been taught that the Bible was handed down for 500 years until Moses wrote it down, right? So, like, maybe there are some things that are not true. Mm -hmm. So this leads to, like, a very, very intense punishment section um, that we did put in the book because we are trying to show, like, the depths of things that people uh, will do in the name of God. Yeah. Anyways, in sort of the aftermath of this really traumatic experience of probably approximately 10 hours in the basement with a pedophile, I have this moment where I just say, like, I don't care, right? Like, if this is love, I don't want this. Mm -hmm. If this is God, I don't want this. And in my six-year-old brain, the way that came out to me was... You know, I've been told that if you're not in the family and the children of God, like you're going to hell. And so at six years old, I was like, well, hell's going to suck. Wow. <laughs> but, you know, like I'm not like I'm not doing this. You know, I don't want this. So that was kind of my my first like honestly really big moment at a very young age. And at every point after that, I just felt One, I'm playing the game, but two, I'm just biding my time until I can get out of here. Mm -hmm. A lot of this, I think, also comes about because I never fit. You know, I am now in my mid-30s getting diagnosed as ADHD and likely on the spectrum somewhere. And, you know, so for all of these reasons, I never felt like I fit. Therefore, a lot of the group programming, I think, is not going to work as much. Um, so I was always the questioning, the why kid, and just biding my time and thinking that I have to make it to 18 because all of my family is also in the children of God. So a lot of my peers, when they would become teenagers, they would be able to get out of the cult because they would be able to go live with their grandparents, you know, and their grandparents who have themselves lost their children to a cult 30 years before are very happy for this opportunity to like get to know their grandchildren and take them in and help them. I didn't have that as my grandparents are part of the leadership. So, you know, then of course the conundrum becomes, well, at 16, you're an adult in the children of God. Um, Because at some point they settle down and like, 
tried to formalize the laws of their sex cults. So there would be a very uh, uncomfortable two years of being like considered sexually a full adult and being 18 and being able to sort of get out on my own. But before any of that happened was like when I had my second moment that I really describe as my crack in the brainwashing of just all the programming that you're receiving in this environment. And this was on 9-11 and we are watching live television on for the first time in my life. I'm 14 years old. You know, we've just recently moved to the US for the first time and we're watching the destruction and disaster. And my, all of the people in the cult are sort of doing the thing that extremists do when disasters happen which is telling us that it is God's will, praising God. You know, this is the promised judgment on evil America. And meanwhile, you know, as young teenagers, we're just fascinated by the television because we haven't seen this before. And I hear the words religious extremists as they start talking about, you know, who like getting information on who conducted this attack. And I just remember having this moment of being like, huh, you know, I wonder as here we are like praising God for his judgment on evil America. Like, are we maybe also religious extremists? Yeah. So the way I kind of defined this for me was like, I, I always knew from at least six on that this wasn't for me. I was getting out of there as soon as possible. You know, I don't think I really believed in, in God or any of it, but I still just felt like it's me, not these people are wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. So it was like me, I don't fit here. Yeah. And then when I actually had this other moment of being like, Oh no, I think maybe you are bad. Like we are bad. And so that was when really I was like, okay, now I need to get away. And now I have about a year and a half until I'm 16, which as mentioned, quickly becomes more problematic for me. Yeah. What would have happened at 16? Would they have, did they marry, like legally marry people within the group or do they just start having families, having sex? So they very much encouraged marriage and you would definitely have people like my mom still is married to the man that the leaders told her to marry when she was 20, mm -hmm. you know, and they hide behind the idea that they don't tell you, Jesus tells you, Got right? It. Or Jesus tells them. Um, but they certainly got involved in marriages and there were a lot of very young marriages, but we were much more always of a forced polyamory group, meaning you were expected to have sex with anyone and everybody that wanted to have sex with you. Okay. And they considered it sharing God's love. Right. Ugh. Right. So in the same way you might have an evangelical church when like single brother so-and-so falls on hard times, like let's go all bring him some casseroles. It would be like single brother so-and-so needs you to share the Lord's love with him tonight. Right. And actually that brings up a question because through reading your book and with your interviews and what you've talked about, it seems like Yes, God's love is for everybody, but was there any emphasis on 
God's love specifically for a woman's pleasure or was it only for the man's pleasure? So it was definitely an extremely sexist patriarchal organization. And there was definitely like the prophet personally did not enjoy going down on women. So suddenly that becomes a thing nobody does, right? Mm. And there's reasonings for it. I don't think he ever like specifically prohibited pleasure for women because that's going to not work with his other goals. Mm -hmm. But it was very telling the way he dealt with homosexuality, for example, which was, you know, there was absolutely no male and male homosexuality that was accepted at all. However, women, if they wanted to be together with another woman, that was okay, as long as they weren't excluding men. Of course. And so it essentially was the, you know, well, men enjoy two women together. So we're going to come up with a way to say that, you know, God has told us that women sharing love with other women is totally fine, but you can't be a lesbian. Right. Um, and here's where this becomes really interesting too, because this is very parallel to what I saw later on serving in the army under don't ask, don't tell, which is as soon as you start defining sexuality and like what people are allowed to do, you can use it as a weapon. Right. So suddenly any woman who is not getting with the program and doing what people want can now be accused of being a lesbian. Mm. And we see this weaponized both in the children of God and in the U.S. Army, where, you know, the threat of being considered a D word for lesbian is ever present. If you are a woman, doesn't matter your actual proclivities mm -hmm. but because you have these sort of arbitrary rules and regulations on sexual activity it can get weaponized in a group environment very quickly yeah because i'm wondering then how that would translate to the kids because i know that a lot of young girls and a few other people that we're going to be talking to soon on the podcast as well were expected to pleasure these men or the men expected them to pleasure them. But I'm I'm wondering if that same thing would translate to young boys or if young girls were almost exclusively the targets for this type of abuse. So if you are asking if young boys were also sexually abused, it definitely happened. Um, it was definitely more taboo. Okay. Like there was... There was a time in the group's history where young girls, yes, were being openly given to the older men. And, you know, my mom was a part of that. My biological father is one of these older men. And it wouldn't have been openly happening in that same way with boys. But of course, when you have this kind of environment, right, sexual abuse is never about sex. It's about power. Um, and so, of course, there were also boys mm -hmm. being sexually abused. But another interesting thing, what I thought you were asking first, is also the way these patterns of abuse get handed down. Mm. Because a big thing we also had by, especially by the younger second generations or the third generations like me, was you have your, you know, your predators, the uncles in the cult, 
but then you also have the boys that are just a bit older than you Mm -hmm. doing a lot of the same things, you know, and this is, I think part of the answer to why we don't have more books by about cults by men, you know, something we see, as you mentioned, like with the Amish, um, they it's in that women talking movie. And they say, you know, the boys are learning their role from the men. Mm-hmm. And the boys have learned their role well. And so when we, you know, in Unculture, telling the story of a girl growing up in this cult, I show you how very effectively we have been programmed, we, the girls, to be submissive. Mm -hmm. You know, we are being programmed from birth to be these viable women that serve the men. Of course, the boys growing up next to us are coming under extreme amounts of physical abuse, the same amount of brainwashing, the same amount of programming, but they're being programmed to be our predators, right? To, while we are being submissive, they're being programmed to dominate us. Yeah. And so we also see this, you know, very difficult to discuss, like abuse by victims of the cult abusing just the next one on next ones on down the line. Yeah, that makes sense. I I just realized for the first time when we were talking about how it's all about sex, but then you don't really hear of, you know, Sister Young is having a hard time. Why don't these boys go and help Sister Young? So I wondered if that was the case. So now that I know that, yeah, that makes sense. And we do talk about how boys are often victims as well, victims of the brainwashing and the programming because they are being trained to become perpetrators, essentially. And that's not to say that all of their actions should be wiped clean. There needs to be accountability. But we also need to take into consideration what they've been taught is reality and what they've been taught is how you do things. So then you are 16, right? When you decide, okay, I'm going to rebel and essentially get myself kicked out. Or was that the thought process or were you just not caring anymore? I would say, okay, so when they move, they move us to Mexico when I am not even 15 yet. Um, So we've had this like short stint in the US where we kind of experienced a bit of freedom, right? Literally for the first time, not living behind giant walls. I have a boyfriend, I'm happy. And all of a sudden we are going again to Mexico, back to another commune, at which point I was just rebelling. I was done, right? Like I didn't care. For example, I just started refusing to be shiny, happy people. Mm-hmm. So I refused to speak Spanish and there wasn't really anything they could do about it other than all of the things the cults do, which is shun you and, and punish you. But that had been happening to me my whole life anyway. Um, you know, so part part of it is just seeing the holes in it, right? It's mm-hmm. like, well, I try so hard to be good, but I've been working full time in a kitchen since I was 11, right? Like I'm not, it's not like I'm going to win some sort of freedom yeah. by doing the good thing, playing the game. You just get used more yeah. by them. So I'm just going to sort of slowly stop playing the game. Um, so for example, I had been a yeah kitchen slave since about the age of 11. So one, just for a month, I just started making giant salad bar and popcorn. And that's all I made for dinner. 
<laughs> Everybody loved it except for the uncles. Uh-huh. Um, but it was hard to complain because they were really good salad bars. <laughs> so I started doing all these little things. Uh, and it's, it's not like I made a specific decision like, oh, I want to get kicked out. It was just, it's so hard to explain. It was like it needed to be something so big and so bad that I would have the courage to look my parents in the face and just say, I don't want anything to do with your way of life. Yeah. And, you know, all I could think at the time was like, I didn't want to hurt my parents. And so I would get in trouble for these smaller things and I could never just do it. And so finally I was like, okay, I have to do something like really big. You know, I say now all the time that if they think they can save you, they try to save you. And exorcisms are not fun. So I realized like, okay, I just need to break like the biggest rule. There's always one big bad thing you can't do. And in the children of God, it had become sleeping with an outsider. Because, you know, there was this period, of course, that they did the the prostitution stuff. But as soon as, you know, AIDS basically started going on and nobody knew what was going on, he closed off his community. So all of a sudden now we have this open, open love situation going on with 10,000 people who are constantly circulating the globe with each other, but nobody outside. Mm -hmm. So very much having communion with the outsider. (laughs) <laughs> was was not allowed. Um, so I just end up at not quite 16, sneaking over the walls, like literally very dramatically, like climbing out of my bedroom at night, up onto the roof, out over the commune neighborhood, <laughs> scaling back down to uh, to go, you know, have sex with a boy that I have met because we sometimes have a little bit more contact with the outside world. It's part of the problematic situation for the cult leaders is that you need your young teenagers going into the outside world to raise money for you. But then they go into the outside world and experience the outside world and want more of it or meet people who help them get away. And so in my case, I I sneak out a couple times, then I fall asleep at his house one night and I just wake up with bedlam going on outside and it's, you know, my sister's just ringing, ringing the doorbell of the house where I'm at. You know, the second you wake up and you see the sun's up, you're like, oh no, I have to get out of here. Yeah. And my sister's like, yeah, they, they all know you're gone. And so I was walking back going like, what am I going to do? Am I going to like, lie and tell them that I just snuck out to smoke a cigarette, which would be bad, but not quite as bad. And then I was just like, no, this is the moment. (laughs) And I was just so angry, so angry that finally I was able to like, you know, as my dad is like storming up into my room and calling me all the names that religious fathers call their daughters when they do things that their fathers can no longer control. Yeah. And I was able to just look at him and just scream the words like, I want to leave, which is pretty convenient because it was an excommunicable offense anyways. Mm. So, you know, it was either going to be six months of grueling, rededicate yourself to God and do all of the hazing that 
God through the leaders require of you or you're out on your own at 15. Yeah. Which is a fun choice. And also it's kind of ironic and funny that the whole cult is about God's love and expressing God's love and everyone deserves God love God's love except not those guys out there or those guys only the people in the group deserve God's love. I find that really interesting. And I said this to my father. You did. In the <laughs> In the month and a half that I was grounded to my room in a commune. So literally could not leave my room for about six weeks. What? And I said to my father, I said, in two months, I'm going to be 16. At which point I would have just been on the menu for every man in this place. Did you and literally you say no that? Issue with it. On the menu? Literally. Oh my gosh, Daniela. I was like, you would have had no issue with it. The only reason you care about my supposed virtue is because I I embarrassed you. Yeah. Ooh, what did he say to that? Just yelled and quoted Bible verses and stormed off. Yeah, I mean, that's logic right there. <laughs> Little firecracker, Daniela. And the things that you know, the parents in these situations don't even realize, right? So so my dad really, I do think, always felt uncomfortable with his daughters being given to men. Mm -hmm. But he couldn't say anything because those were the rules of the cults. But as soon as he could say something about mine and he was allowed to go all protective, dad figure over 15-year-old daughter, he did. But then what did that say to all of his other daughters whom he had never protected? Yeah. You know, so I'm here just angry teenager. Like, You're so unreasonable. And his older daughters are like, oh, so you care about her, but you didn't care when it was us. Mm. I mean, it really does kind of show you just how ridiculous and arbitrary all of their, their rules are and the way they sort of control the actual feelings you're allowed to have. Yeah. You know, like you're just, you're just not allowed. Like his, one of his daughters got pregnant at 17 and she was with a guy in the cult and he was just not allowed to be upset about that. Um, just had to be happy about it. So he was. That's so much to take in at that young of an age, especially with everything you're dealing with being isolated, the urge to be free, kind of having a taste of the outside world. You came to the States at one point, so you knew what life could have been like without high walls and restrictions and communes. And so it just seems so terrifying. How did you actually get yourself out of that situation and get back to the States? Okay, so, and this is just very luckily for me, we were living in Mexico because I had just come from Brazil, mm -hmm. for example, which would have been significantly harder like you know they always say oh you're free to leave anytime groups that don't want to be considered cults yeah and sure the children of god had a great you're free to leave anytime you just got to pay your way back you know so i would have been a 15 year old you know at this point i think i had to raise the money for the bus fare for the three of us to go to from guadalajara mexico to Houston, Texas, mm -hmm. which is where my mother, so my mother who had me at 15 
was married off at the age of 20 to a guy who was 40, who had already had some eight children, 10 children before this. Wow. And so one of my stepsisters, who I had met exactly three times, um, agreed to take me in. It's just 15 and a half year old, do you want her? Which is just a whole other issue of parentification that these cult parents did to all of their older children who struggled and got themselves on their feet were then just expected to and usually did open up their homes and their lives to help the younger ones. Mm -hmm. So I have this 25 year old sister who's been out of the cult for three years you know she's bartending at night trying to get her life together and she's like sure yeah she can come live here so we take a bus my parents drop me off I will say yeah I, I had no concept like it's just so huge that you really have no concept of your life and how it's going to change and at the time the only thing I was focused on was like I wanted to go to college so badly which I knew meant I should go to high school yeah um because it would be so much easier if I went to high school and so I was just focused on I just want to go to high school I just want to go to high school I definitely did start wavering you know in my choice like they realized my family is pretty important and I was well known and having one of your oldest third generation well known members leave isn't going to be a good look. Yeah. So they started trying to offer me kind of cool new assignments if I would just, you know, rededicate myself to God and go with the program. And this is where I'm very grateful that my mom, you know, takes me on a walk outside the commune and she's like, look, just go. She's like, you're not happy. You know, I've talked to her about it as an adult. And she was like, I just remember you were, you never seemed happy, mm -hmm. you know? So even though it would take her like another eight years to get herself away, she was like, no, just go. Like we found you a place, just go. And so that's how I came to be dropped off in Houston, Texas with $0 and one passport and one social security card and one little suitcase. Yeah. I I'm sure you couldn't even comprehend, like you said, what was going on because you're kind of in survival mode and just get me out of here. I don't care what it takes, but I'm out. So let's talk about those unintended consequences then when you are out and you're in the world and you're like, oh, shit, <laughs> now what? <laughs> so I have sort of, as someone studying this, like I've broken down leaving a cult into three stages. And so I always say the first stage is this crack in the brainwashing, the decision to leave, and the like physically and mentally leaving the cult mm -hmm. and everything that that takes, right? So it's like getting yourself away, getting yourself established. All, all of the things when you say leaving a cult that people think of, like that's just phase one. Mm -hmm. It's just like where you have to go um, and get yourself stable and for me, like, I was a 15-year-old with no money and education. Like, getting myself stable was going to take uh, about six years. <laughs> yeah. You know, and during that time, it's not like you have that much bandwidth to do, like, your second phase, which is deconstructing, you know, I, I call it figuring out why you were in a cult and what impacts it had on your personality 
and actually either, you know, figuring out how to return to your pre-cult self if you had one or much more complicated if like us, you were born and raised in that system. You have to like figure out who you are for the first time. Yeah. But it's almost impossible to do most of that while you're still struggling for survival. Yeah. So you just have this whole phase, which for me was kind of these six years. So I did high school in two years and then college in four and then ended up in the military at which literally at which point I got through my training and I was at my first job as a lieutenant is when I Googled children of God cults for the first time. Wow. And a, about 10 seconds later was staring at a picture of my father's face on a well-known pedophiles page. Really? And that's how I found out my father's legal name. So you know, speaking of the after part, that's always a fun cocktail story to tell. <laughs> <laughs> so all this to say, right, the, the most difficult part is you don't know how to fit into the world, but you don't know that you don't know how to fit into the world. Right. And... It's funny because later as an intelligence officer, we use this quadrant and the corner that you don't know what you don't know is the dark, dangerous quadrant, mm -hmm. right? So I'm 15. I think all I have to do is like show up, right? So I show up at high school. I have a social security card and a passport and they're like, I'm sorry, we can't enroll you here because you don't exist. But, but now that we know you exist and we have your address, if we don't know that you're enrolled somewhere in five days, we have to call the cops. What? <laughs> no, so like, we can't enroll you here. So I get really lucky at this point that my sister's boyfriend has gone to regular high school and college and is kind of just this brash, rough-talking Texan that is like, oh, hell no, you're not telling me that a child in America can't go to school. Yeah. And of course, I also get very lucky that I am white and everyone just assumes that I am like innocent and like want to do well. So we end up having to go all the way up to like the city level to get me not only get me enrolled in school, but get me tested out of like 22 subjects, at which point I am like so strongly relying on my ability to just bullshit <laughs> and be hyper hyperlexive and tell stories. Um, because I certainly haven't been educated in most of these topics. Um, but with the exception of math and science, I pass most of them. And then I'm able to like somehow fold in everything I need into two years of high school. No plans to go to college at that point, because of course I knew I wouldn't know how to pay for it. Mm. And so I was talking with the Marines actually, when I got the attention of my high school counselor, because I wrote an essay that talked about growing up in a cult. Yeah. And then she was the one that was like, look, you need to go to college with, with very, I don't want to say minimum effort because obviously it's amazing that she saw me at all, but with just a few things, she changed my entire life. 
and like set me on this track to go to college. But this whole time, like this whole six years, it's so hard to describe. Like you're just trying to do everything you can to seem like a normal kid, Mm -hmm. but you have no idea what that is because you've been held separate from the world for your whole life. So it's like, honestly, this really heavy version of autistic masking or, I mean, it's, it's a form of being closeted with this fact or this identity that you have that you're a cult survivor, but you don't really know what that means. You just know that you've grown up in a cult. And if you talk about it, everybody's going to judge you. And so you don't talk about it and you just try to like perfection your way through life Mm -hmm. because that's what you've been taught to do in a high control environment. And this was kind of, I feel like a a good treadmill I put myself on for about 10 years, which, you know, takes me into the military and into kind of a a breakdown. A lot of people get to do the the running, pretending to be perfect thing till they're about mid thirties. I, did it on steroids in the military. So I got to 27 (laughs) Mm -hmm. and then I I broke down really hard at which point was kind of like, yeah, you really got to start deconstructing. And there's so much in all of that that I just said, but now I know that all of the best psychologists and people working in the post-cult industry agree that like you can't, recover from the experience without understanding how cults and coercive control works. Yeah. And it just comes back to this, like you have to understand the impacts it had on you. It's not just as simple as walking away and like get surviving. Yeah. And there's so many things that happen in that process because there's the dissolution of your former self, which is essentially the cult identity, not necessarily your identity. But if you don't really know how the world works, you're basically in survival mode. So you don't really have the opportunity to create who you want to be or because you may not understand the boundaries of yourself or the world or how it works, you may overcorrect and do things that you normally wouldn't have done if you weren't mm-hmm. trying to rebel against the rules and this dissolution of your former former self. Right. And also just being able to recognize what happened to you in a really profound, deep way once you understand that that wasn't okay and wasn't normal also takes a hugely emotional toll. And we did an entire episode about your time in the military. And guys, I highly recommend that you go check that out. We'll probably put it on the end screen or put a card up or in the description because this was not just like a a normal breakdown. She was completely incapacitated physically as well. All the trauma just kind of resurfaced at once. And it really stopped her in her tracks. And there's a lot to that story that we won't get deep into this one on with. But I just want people to understand there's just so much that goes into leaving a cult, like in this phase that we're talking about. Well, and there's this additional level, too, as you were talking, made me think of the like, we also don't have a culture, which is part of why I wrote, I titled my book Uncultured. Yeah. And in in my situation, it's extreme. So it's easier to understand. Like, I... I'm American by birth, but I was born in the Philippines to a mother who couldn't remember America. 
And I spent, you know, all of my life growing up in Asia and Latin America. Coming to the U.S. was my biggest culture shock. And then moving to the U.S., to Texas, going to a school with 4,000 students, like, who am I supposed to be? Mm-hmm. So what I, what I look like, the boxes that I seem to check is white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Texas girl. But I, I don't know how to be her because I didn't grow up here. I didn't learn that culture. Right. And so for me, it has been many years of understanding that like, I, I don't have a culture. There's there's nowhere that actually is home for me mm-hmm. except the place I have chosen. But it's it's equally true for you. It's just not as pronounced because you also have rejected sort of the microculture that you came from. Mm-hmm. But if you grew up in any sort of high demand group, you were held separate from the world. You were held separate from your culture. Right. So you are not the same as another girl from Utah who didn't grow up heavily Mormon. Mm -hmm. Right. And so there, there are all of these levels of unpacking and realizing that like, I don't know anyone that has an answer. It's just, we don't have a culture. And so we have to define, we have to choose. Humans think they're rational. They really believe it. But in actuality, we make most of our choices based on what we've seen done before. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge recency bias, too. So if we've seen it done recently, we go with that one. And so and this is my my third stage of leading the cult is moving forward with no models. And when you've grown up in a high control group, like you don't have models, you don't have a culture, you Right? Like at any time I go to say, even to my husband, like, we're going to do something parenting. I can't be like, well, when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, <laughs> throw all that out. Yeah. You know? And so you have to, you know, the way I always explain it, it's like you're stuck in between, you know, I know that the cult's version of everything about how to raise children was wrong, but I also know that America's concepts of nudity are are weird and puritanical and I don't like them, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And so it's like, it's, there's just not an easy answer. You have to think about everything. You have to choose your culture on everything. And that's so much work and it requires so much change. And this is one of the reasons I think people choose not to do the deconstructing because they think it's just easier to wear a black blazer and not a cheetah spot blazer and fade into the background yeah. so that nobody asks questions so that you don't have to think about answers. Yeah, just live within the boundaries that are given to you. Even if you want to push those boundaries, you're still within the boundaries and you can say you're progressive, but really are you? <laughs> because still someone is making your decisions for you, whether you realize it or not, it's coercive control. And it is difficult, but it's also really exciting and fun because I think it provides this opportunity for critical thinking at its finest. When you really get to choose the culture you want to be a part of, choose your own morality or your standards or your family values, whatever is important to you, 
that means you actually have to look at it critically and hopefully in an unbiased way this time because you generally what happens is you're like, well, I've been wrong before. So let me really dive into this and see what I want to do. And it really provides so much room for expansion of thought, awareness, perspective, understanding that you've never been given the opportunity to have before when someone is telling you this is the answer, this is how it has to be, and you just have to go with it. Mm -hmm. So it's equally scary as it is exciting. But like you're saying, yeah, it takes a lot of work. (laughs) My analogy for this is shopping in a thrift store, which, by the way, after you should go check out my TikTok thrift store haul video. (laughs) This, this cheetah spot blazer was one of them. Nice. So like when you go shopping in a shopping mall, there is a message. Somebody has thought about what they want you to purchase, Uh right? Even when you go grocery store shopping, right? They, they know, for example, that when you walk through the produce, you buy more non-produce. That's why they always put the produce in the front of the store. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. So yeah, people reward themselves for getting a bag of oranges by getting like <laughs> chocolates and chips later. Yeah. So, so, but in a thrift store, nobody is, is messaging to you what they want you to buy. Mm. You just have to walk up to a cheetah pl- print blazer and go, do I love this or do I hate this? Yeah. You know, and you, it's scary. I tell people this analogy from high control groups, because actually playing with your appearance is a great non-threatening way Mm -hmm. to learn to do this with like your ideas and, and your mind and stuff. But it's like, you know, instead of dressing the way you've always thought you're supposed to dress, wear something crazy, just in public for a day. (laughs) And like, just notice all of the things that are different. But it's like, the freedom to do that is equally freeing and terrifying because Mm -hmm. we are all so afraid of getting it wrong or you know making some sort of cultural faux pas but one of the reasons people join cults and high control groups is because it seems easier to have someone tell you what to do than it is to like make your own choices and have to live with the consequences of being wrong Yeah. I remember just the act of getting a third piercing, which I had two piercings. It's like a whole story. When I was a kid, I got my second piercing at like, I don't know, 10 or 11. And around that time, the prophet of the Mormon church came out and said that women can only have one piercing. And I did the brave thing and took it out. And I was so righteous and proud of myself. And then when I was older, I ended up putting it back in. But for me, it was only in 2019 that I was like, oh, I'm going to get a third piercing. It was like this whole rebellious, quote, rebellious stage of my life where I was like, I'm going to write a book about my experience growing up Mormon. I'm going to cut my hair in an asymmetrical cut. I'm going to get a third ear piercing and I'm going to get a tattoo, which is about like an inch tall and it's white. (laughs) And still, like, it's so tame and laughable. And you're going to sometimes wear tank tops. Yeah. Oh, I definitely, that was the first thing I did when I left the cult. (laughs) I love the ex-Mormons that just like have to have their shoulders showing. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm going to invent like a fuzzy turtleneck and I'm going to call it the ex-Mo, but it's going to be sleeveless. Yes. That's going to be amazing. You have to. But honestly, that's such a big pushback because when you're Mormon, that is an expectation of you is cover your shoulders. And if you're not covering your shoulders, what are you even doing? It's a huge judgment thing. When you see someone who's Mormon wearing a tank top as a Mormon, you're like, oh, guess she doesn't want to go to heaven. Like, it's really that serious. (laughs) 
And people may push back yeah. and say that's not true, but it kind of is. Well, and if you're a woman, you get the two for one benefit that like the misogynist will come out of the woodwork as soon as like they cannot understand why you are wearing what you are wearing. I like I just I just do it on TikTok for fun now. Like I just wear a <laughs> crown some days because just like the sexists just come out swinging. Yeah. And you realize like how much they are used to it attitude and appearance control, right? Especially of women. And mm-hmm. like as soon as you start being loud and start being colorful and like stop being the skinny white woman, you know, people like start coming for you. High control groups do not want you there anymore. Yeah. And you've been out for quite a while now. Would you say that your personality, because I know it was always there, that little firecracker, Daniela, but when you were able to really come into yourself and be, I don't know, show your true colors or create your own true colors, when was that? Was that after the military or before? Uh, in the middle, in the middle, you know, I spent, I definitely spent a decade under this belief. I feel like that I would like one day just out perfection, my trauma, right? Like I was going to run faster, jump higher, do everything. And one day I was going to be so successful that my past wouldn't matter. Mm. And then I was a captain in the U S army with a medal from the president. And like, I was falling apart. Right. So this was like the lie for me. Um, but definitely like when I was about 24, 25 on my first deployment was when I had a, a very close call with dying by suicide. And that was when I realized like, I need to, I need to talk about it. Like I am living behind this mask that like doesn't allow anyone to get to know me. Because I'm so worried that people will reject me when they get to know me. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I always tell survivors now, people are so afraid to share their stories. And I say, when you hear a story of someone who's come through something incredible, do you judge them? Or do you feel like more connected to them? Right? If you're always like, no, yeah, I think they're amazing. You're kind of like, okay. So when you share your stories of trauma that you've come through, more than likely, people are not going to respond to you with this terrible, terrible thing. Mm-hmm. But I, I really think like that is of all of the things that the cult programmed into me, like the biggest one that I absorbed was this idea, like the outside world is awful. And if people know what you're really like, what we really do, right? Like they will reject you. Mm -hmm. Turns out I'm kind of (laughs) cool. You're pretty great. Me (laughs) took me like another decade though, still, you know, cause you just, you start talking about it a little bit and then, You know, for me, I almost say I got lucky because if I'm going to talk to you at all, like it's going to come out. So, you know, my husband jokes now, like when I'm not in the mood for peopling, I say I'm from Texas and my (laughs) husband just laughs, you know, because it's like, oh, she really doesn't want to talk right now. Yeah. Because any question you ask me, like, you know, how many siblings do you have? Oh, I have 25. Like we're getting into it. Like we're getting into the story. And as soon as it's honestly part of why people don't want to talk about their stories is because they're so complicated, but that's because we haven't put them into order ourselves yet. 
So this becomes, you know, in the book Educated, I pointed out, I'm like the part where she's going around like trauma dumping at all the dinners and just like being the entertainment telling her family's story. Like, I noticed that phase. Like, that's the point where we are learning to tell our stories. We're learning to like sort out like who we are, right? We're like doing that work of figuring out how to tell it. And then you do finally get to a point where I'm still the crazy cult girl at parties, but it doesn't stop the party anymore. Like I'm just good at telling my story and, and just being like one of the people in the group mm-hmm. or like, you know how in friends, like Phoebe is still the unique one that comes from the traumatic past, but she also fits nicely into this group of six people. Yeah, and I think a big part about telling your story is learning how you want to tell it and learning the things that are okay to keep to yourself that you decide. This is a little triggering for me to talk about. I'm not going to talk about this part, but I'll let them in on this part. And that's totally okay to decide what you're willing to share and what you're not willing to share. Yeah. And also understanding that sometimes like one of the most triggering or difficult things is not having stories to share, you know, and everybody Mm -hmm. is sitting around talking about childhood this or like, you know, what they did for summer camp growing up or like, anytime I go to an event at my daughter's elementary school, you know, it's kind of like, I didn't have this. I'm never gonna feel like I had this. Mm -hmm. Acknowledging that for me, right? Like that has been a big part of the healing. One of the best quotes I've heard about this was, we know we're healing when we stop wishing for a do over. Mm. You know, so it's like, there's no amount of anything I'm going to do in my life. I actually like I've checked every block I have set out to check I have accomplished every mission I I have. Um, It doesn't magically give me a childhood. You know, it it doesn't magically mean that I'm not going to have those moments in a group setting where I just look around and I'm like, oh, the rest of you are moms and I'm playing a mom. Um, (laughs) But I think we learn that to just like meet those feelings and like dance with them a little bit and then move on instead of like having it like the fear of that happening and then there's always more to it right mm-hmm. like we're afraid we're not afraid we're going to have like a moment in a in a group setting that's going to make us feel sad we we feel like we have that moment and then the whole group's going to laugh at us and kick us out of the building and like no it's you're just going to have a moment and then you're going to turn back to your people and they're going to accept you back if they know though. So like, that's honestly the biggest thing that I've done for myself is I just, I don't have anyone in my life that has off limits topics or like doesn't want to talk about difficult things. And so everybody who is in my life knows that I'm a scholar of cults. This is what I talk about, that I have a traumatic background. Like it's going to come up sometimes and they accept that. And so you know, they, they give me other beautiful things and they're also accepting of me when I'm not like always healed and put together. Yeah. That's another big, I, I think that would be maybe 
Phase four is finding a new community, people who you feel safe around, who you can talk to, who you can really bond with without having that fear that they're going to reject you if you believe or think a different way than they do. And it takes time to find that find that community and to be able to trust your story with somebody else and and yeah. really be open with them. And I wanted to talk a little bit about your community as far as your family, because I know you met your husband in the military and you have a beautiful daughter now. And I would love to know how you touched on it a little bit, but how your background has translated into the way that you parent and things that maybe come up for you that you didn't expect. Yeah. I mean, there's just always the feeling of like, I don't know how to do this. Um, I joke that there hasn't been a mother in my family in generations. Like, how did I just think I was going to know how to do it? Mm. So my husband was retiring from the military in 2020. And we he was actually retiring in the part of the country he was from. And we made the intentional decision to look for a different place to live um, where we were maybe divorced from most family drama. You know, something you said about finding the new community is like, also when you're in this process of taking off the high control group, however long after you've come out of it. Right. But like my husband being in the military, coming out of the military, he's a different person to his family. People from your old life decide if they are going to be accepting or not of your kind of transition and deconstruction and figuring out this new person that you are. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, it's easier to just leave and find your own community. So that's what we did. We ended up on this epic uh, RV trip around the country in the summer of 2020. Um, and we ended up moving to Maryland. Uh, it's like near DC, which is amazing because I say everyone comes to DC eventually. So just get to like live here and, and people come through and we, you know, one of the things we were specifically looking for was a diverse community and just putting that marker on the board. I think we ended up in a place where we were going to be able to find a really good group. I mean, I learned this back in college, I guess, when I fell in with the international chess team. But like when there's no majority or no norm, you're not weird. You're just individual. Yeah. And so we found this super great community that is walkable. Like we love it. We want to stay here for the rest of our life. And ever since we moved here, we have been who we are. So I was already this lady who'd written a book about my memoir or about my cult life. So it seems like it would be awkward, but in some ways it was just incredibly freeing to move to a different community and be like, this is who we are. Hey, you can, (laughs) not many people get to have all their new friends, just like read a book about them and be like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Got it. (laughs) Um, You know, but the thing we've made is, is like, we're just open. We're like, we are doing the work to deconstruct ourselves, our programming, our biases, learn to be good people. And if you want to be in our life and in our community, cool, we want you here. And if you don't, like we are, we decided we were done spending our time and resources trying to be part of like 
groups that just didn't want us to be part of them. Yeah, that's so awesome. I love that. Do you have any tips for people who may be in that position where they need to find a new community and they don't really know where to look? Or did you just let them kind of come to you naturally? I mean, have a kid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, a lot of uh, the, the kid opens up the community a lot. But I mean, I think the for me, the tip was just like, like figure out what things you want to have in your life, like what things and what kind of people, you know, so we did this from like what we wanted our like our living space to be like, for example, we want a sauna. Mm -hmm. So we made it happen in our tiny townhouse. (laughs) But like, you know, we want to we want to live somewhere for us. It was this like international right access to diverse communities, this kind of stuff. And we wanted walkable, we wanted so just like, defining the things that are important to you. And if you are, of course, if you're physically moving, this is very convenient, right? Because you're picking a place to live where other people probably want similar things to what you want. Mm -hmm. But even like if you're physically staying the same and you're just trying to find new people in your community, just this kind of idea we've been talking about of like slowing down, deconstructing, figuring out who you are, why... Like, why are you going to this event instead of another one? You know, what are your actual interests versus what you think society wants you to do? I cannot explain to you how much community I have built from knitting um, all the time and everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So she's been knitting this whole time if you're only listening. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I always joke with my followers I'm like 10,000 of them just are there to watch me knit and like talk to me <laughs> about knitting and see patterns but like as soon as you figure out like who you are it's it's easy to find people that like either want to be in your life or don't yes I take it now as a comfort when we do like a play date or we talk to someone we have one interaction with people and then we never see them again I'm like okay cool right like that sorted itself out. Yeah. And we still get to be who we are. So this kind of, I guess, just like, just like, unapologetically being yourself. Yeah. Instead of like, all of the ways that high control groups tell us exactly who to be, what to think, how to look, all of that. But like society does too. Cultures do too, right? Like that's, what a culture really is, is kind of all the rules that a group has come up with to organize itself. So as soon as you just decide, like, I'm going to do this because I want to, and I'm free. I'm a grown woman and I do what I want to do. (laughs) I couldn't agree with that more. That's so good. And I think it's the same with me, especially I think that's why one of the big reasons why I chose California is because it's just this melting pot of everybody and anything goes and it's just be who you want to be. And anytime I go to Utah, I physically feel uncomfortable because I feel like I'm walking back into this box as someone who doesn't fit. And I'm just like, (laughs) 
it just feels weird, even yeah. though no one's going to stop me in the street and be like, what are you doing, young lady? You can't wear that tank top. Yeah. I still feel them thinking it when they look at me with those judgy eyes. <laughs> and, so, and so being yourself, finding the environment where you can really thrive, I think is just so important if you have the option. I know that's not the case for everybody. You can't just pick up and move somewhere. But if you do have the option, I think that's a really liberating thing as you've been talking about. But even and even on this point, because this is such a good point, right? Like you're always going to feel uncomfortable when you're the one doing something different and everyone else is doing something the same. Mm -hmm. And when people don't believe that, I just say, just picture yourself on a naked beach, but you're wearing clothes. Mm -hmm. Like you're going to feel uncomfortable, even though you're the one wearing clothes, you're going to feel like you're the one naked because you're the odd one out. So go find a place where you're not the odd one out. And it can be, if you can move, of course, that can be very liberating, right? To like physically go be in that place. But even if you can't like move somewhere different, just understanding that you will, it will be harder to be yourself in a place where there's like a very controlled, like uniform way of being. Mm -hmm. And so it will be that much more traumatizing. It will be that much more exhausting. It will be that much more difficult. So find at least your spaces where you can just be yourself. Yeah. Um, little and pockets. Then also be, and then also be kind to every minority around you because they live with that every day. Yeah, I think that's so good. If you can't move your environment, find those little pockets, those meetup groups or whatever it is that you enjoy doing, find your people in that way and surround yourself with the people who do make you feel special for being who you are. And this has been so great. I need to get to your Linda Listen moment, your sassy statement as the viral video with the toddler goes or something inspirational up to you. Yeah. Uh, oh, my gosh. I love that video so much. <laughs> yeah. I Mine is just going to be this quote that I heard recently. Anytime someone is telling you what your identity is, you're in danger. Oh. Right? So just do what you want to do. Right? If you are not hurting somebody else, dress how you want, speak how you want, do the activities you want, because like, that is part of being an individual mm -hmm. and you're going to, you're just going to find so much that we, neither of us could predict. Yeah. So that's great. Yeah. That's awesome. Thanks do so much you for coming do. back. You're an adult. Yeah. Nobody needs to give you permission to live your life. Yeah. I just think we all need to hear this more often, you know? Yeah, I agree. So awesome. Thank you so much for coming back on and sharing even more with us. Do you have any final thoughts before we go? Anything we might have missed? Nothing that we've missed. I just wanted to tell everybody that Uncultured is now out in paperback. Yay! It's been newly released. And it is also on sale on the Audible for only 10 bucks right now. So either of these are great options, especially... What Uncultured is good for is getting people to question their groups that they haven't questioned before. Mm -hmm. So if you're already questioning, it's a great gift to give to somebody for Christmas who you just like want to nudge into questioning. <laughs> you don't, you don't even have to tell them what the book is about. <laughs> yeah. It's very sneaky. You can just be like, there's sex cult, there's military. <laughs> and then like, 
the book will get them to do their own questioning. So I love that. And so check, check that out. And of yeah. course, come join me on TikTok where I am every day making videos about cults and knitting and talking about group behavior. Yes. So first of all, we are doing a giveaway. One lucky person will get Daniela's hard copy book for free. All you have to do is go to Instagram, write something or a little video about what you like the most about this episode, tag me and Daniela. I'll put our tags and all the instructions in the description. And then we will draw a name of someone to receive a book. And so to find her on Instagram, your handle is Daniela M. Young underscore. On TikTok, TikTok, Daniela Mesonek Young. And I will also put the links to her book on Amazon in the description as well. And if you just check out, if you check out the hashtag group behavior gal mm. on any platform, you will find me also because my name is complicated. <laughs> well, this has been so great. Thank you so much again. I always love learning more about your life and just going back and forth because you are just a wealth of knowledge. It's so great to talk with you. So nice to see you. Have fun in Costa Rica. Oh, yeah, guys. If you want to go on our Costa Rica trip, it is available now. I'll put the link in the description on how you can sign up and see the full itinerary. We are going next year, end of August. So excited to meet you guys in real life and have adventures together. And if you want to get some of our holiday merch, we have some holiday sweaters um, that I just put out I think are kind of fun. They're like holiday theme. There's an ugly Christmas sweater that says too naughty for your cult. And I think it's just awesome. And you can find that at our um, on our website, cultsdeconsciousness.com under the merch tab. If you want to become a patron, you can do so at patreon.com slash cultsdeconsciousness. And if you like these videos, check out these two below. And until next time, follow your highest excitement, be conscious and be well. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, it would mean a lot if you could like and subscribe on YouTube and leave a review or a comment to help with their visibility. You can also find me on social media at Colts2Consciousness or reach out by email at Colts2Consciousness at gmail.com.